1: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast. I'm Vas Christodoulou, the producer of this series. At How To Academy, we like to tackle big ideas, and they don't get much bigger than our theme this week. It's the meaning of life. A few weeks back, Hannah McInnes met evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins for a live stream event, where she asked him for his perspective on this ancient question.
0: Richard, thank you very much indeed for joining us. I think we'll start with this very small question, the meaning of life. It's not my usual style to sort of leap in like this, but I know that you are very well prepared and equipped to answer it. So what is, uh, according to Richard Dawkins, the meaning of life?
2: Well, according to me personally, it's got all sorts of private meanings, which which are, are of no interest to anybody. But I suppose you're asking me as an evolutionary biologist, and as it happens, evolutionary biology does have the answer to the meaning of life in the scientific sense. The meaning of life, or the purpose of life, the purpose of what's it for, in other words, is to propagate genes. So the meaning, the the purpose of, say, a bird's wing is, in the first place, to keep the bird surviving, Second place to keep it reproducing and and ultimately what that means is gene survival. So the meaning of life is the survival of genes. Now that requires, I suppose, some justification. I've done that in print often enough and I'll try again very briefly now. If you look back at your ancestry, if any animal looks back through an indefinite number of generations, you can say quite confidently, that not a single one of your ancestors died young before reproducing. So what that means is that we're descended from a long, indefinitely long line of successful ancestors, ancestors that became ancestors because they were good at it, because they were good at surviving, good at reproducing, good at mating, good at looking after their children and so on. And ultimately what that means is good at passing on their genes. So all living creatures, us included, inherit the genes that have over countless generations led to the survival of their ancestors, led to their ancestors being ancestors. Now, the different ways in which different species do it, of course, is very various. Gibbons are good at surviving up in trees. Moles are good at surviving underground. Sharks are good at surviving in water and so on. thousands of different ways of being good at surviving but it's all ultimately about gene survival so I'm sorry to have to say that the meaning of life is gene survival.
0: It is essentially a rather I know bleak is the word but it's a meaning of life that seems to strip life of sort of feeling and an emotion isn't there more meaning than just that physical passing on of genes then?
2: Well, of course, and that's why I began by saying that my own personal meaning of life would be quite different and yours will be different and everybody else's will be be different. You make your own meaning of life. Uh, We as humans have all sorts of individual purposes. We want to learn German, we want to write a book, we want to compose a symphony, we want to score a century, we want to, I don't know, dig a garden. There are all sorts of different meanings that we personally can give. And thank goodness for it, I mean, I, I would hate to give the impression that because the ultimate biological meaning of life is the propagation of genes, that that's the only thing that gives us personally meaning. And so humans are actually very unique, I think, in this respect. And I think it would be a good idea to sort of try to go into why that is, because it's a bit of a puzzle, really, why humans are so unique. If you look at any wild animal, you will notice that it devotes its time, devotes its efforts to propagating its genes, to to reproducing, to finding a mate, to finding a a nesting site, to to finding food. But we don't do that. We are devoting our time, as I said, to, I don't know, playing cricket, writing symphonies, writing books, et cetera. So there's something puzzling about that, something odd about the way humans have managed to detach ourselves from this fundamental biological imperative to propagate our genes. We see it obviously in the case of contraception. I mean, clearly um, we enjoy sex. And biologically, the reason we enjoy sex is that that tends to give rise to children, but in the wild it gives rise to children, but we use contraceptives and so it doesn't. I'm rather fond of a sort of fanciful speculation that if there was some kind of a berry, some kind of a tree that had, had say red berries on it, which were very good to eat, very good nutritionally speaking, but which were contraceptive, then we would biologically be selected to treat those as a deadly poison, even though they're very good for us in a nutritional sense. But because they're contraceptives, we would treat them as a poison. Contraception is a kind of subversion of the biological urge Adoption is another subversion. Now, I, I'm nothing against adoption. Obviously, I think it's a wonderful thing that people do adopt other people's children, but it is a very un thing to do. Uh, cuckoos get their babies adopted by meadow Pimmets, pippets and, and reed warblers and robins and things. And it's as though the cuckoos are getting paid when what's really happening is that they're exploiting the um, reed warblers, robins, and so on. Well, human adopters are a bit like the reed warblers, they're being exploited from a biological point of view, not of course from a personal point of view, as I said before, I think adoption is a wonderful thing. Sperm donors, you'd think that from a biological point of view, people should pay to donate sperm because it's a wonderful, cheap way of getting your genes into the next generation. Uh, But actually, sperm donors are paid. So there's something very odd about humans. And I like to use the word subversion for this. We, in many ways, subvert our selfish genes. Um, A good example of subversion in animals is sheepdogs where the, the wild behavior of a wolf, you can see when wolves are stalking prey, they crouch down like a sheepdog and they crawl along in exactly the way you'll see a sheepdog doing when it's herding sheep. So what we've done as breeders of sheepdog is to hijack, subvert, the natural behavior of a wolf, because of what dogs are, just domesticated wolves. And we've subverted that particular behavior of crouching low and creeping towards the prey, stalking the prey. That's what sheepdogs are doing. It's the stalking behavior of a wolf. They've cut off the end stages of that behavior, which is the pounce and the kill, but it is a subversion. I like to make a distinction between what I call archipurpose and neopurpose, archi as in A-R-C-H-I. The archipurpose of, of everything in life is gene survival. I just dealt with that. The neopurpose applies to humans only, at least possibly so. And the neopurpose of, of, is something like a, a computer or a tin opener, a pen, the neo-purpose is what we choose to make it, what the designer of the thing, the designer of the computer of the car, the computer, the plane, whatever it is, designed it for. The ultimate purpose of everything is gene survival, but the neo-purpose in the human case is what we choose to make it for. We have a global goal. All living creatures have a global goal, which is gene survival. I've already dealt with that. But in the service of that global goal, wild animals and us and we set up a series of sub-goals and sub-sub-goals. So in the service of the global goal of gene survival, we set up a sub-goal of finding a mate. We set up a sub-goal of finding food. We set up a sub-goal of finding shelter. And then the sub-sub-goal would be locating a mate. Another one would be courting the mate. Another one would be actually copulating within the sub-goal of finding food, locate the food. Uh, in the case of a predator, stalk the food, pounce on the food, kill the food, and so on. So we have goals, and then sub-goals, and then sub-sub-goals, and then sub-sub-goals. And what's happened with the subversion is that the sub-goals have got hijacked away from the global goal, which is gene survival. I think the patron saint of subversion, in my sense, is... Colonel Nicholson in the film, Bridge on the River Kwai. I don't know how many of our audience have seen that film. It's a wonderful film. It's fiction, but it might as well be fact. Colonel Nicholson was an officer, a British officer captured by the Japanese and forced by the Japanese. He and his large company of soldiers were forced to build a bridge over the River Kwai. And Colonel Nicholson, to begin with, all the soldiers were sabotaging the bridge, as you might expect. But Colonel Nickoxen got obsessed with the, the goal of building this bridge. And he forgot that the real goal should be winning the war against the Japanese. He forgot that. And he concentrated all his energy on building this bridge. And he became so obsessed by it that when Allied soldiers eventually came and tried to sabotage the bridge, he tried to stop them sabotaging it because he was so obsessed. His goal, he'd taken the, the in this case, the main goal of beating the Japanese. And he'd taken a sub-goal, which is build the bridge, and hijacked it. And that had become his main goal. So animals have sub-goals, and the sub-goals can be regarded as subservient to the main goal. But in the case of humans, Colonel Nicholson is not the only one. We are constantly hijacking the global goal of gene survival. And Becoming obsessed with the sub-goal of all sorts of other things like, as I said before, composing a symphony, something like that. This is a sub-goal. It doesn't help us at all in the main goal of propagating our genes. But nevertheless, the mechanism is in the brain for setting up sub-goals and sub-sub-goals. And that brain mechanism for setting up sub-goals has taken over and we forget about the main goal. So we use contraceptives, we enjoy sex, we use contraceptives that has subverted the goal of reproduction. Various of our biological drives have been hijacked, subverted. I have mentioned sex already, parental behavior, parental care is hijacked or subverted by the desire to keep pets, cute pets that may Present puppies that may resemble human babies. Um, hunger, obviously, the drive to eat food, to find food, is, is an important sub goal for surviving and propagating your genes. But it's subverted by the desire for lots of sugar. Sugar is not good for you. In the wild, you couldn't get enough of it. And so it was okay to have a, a goal to, uh, to eat as much sugar as possible, but no longer. An interesting one is kinship. We have a genetic tendency to favor our kin. There are very good genetic reasons for this because um, your genetic kin share your genes and therefore being good to your kin, looking after your kin, cooperating with your kin is a good thing genetically speaking. But this too can be subverted. Fictive kin is a technical term which is used. Platoons in the army, are welded together as bands of brothers. So this this kinship term of brothers is used to actually weld the platoon into a a company of loyalty. They will fight for the good of their brothers, for the good of their fictive kin. Religious imagery, religious terminology makes great use of the the terms fictive kin. And we talk about the Holy Father, we talk about brothers in Christ, and uh, nuns call each other sister and so on. Now there's a, a paradox, a sort of a called, called the flexibility paradox. The ease with which we can set up these sub goals, which are really have quite a negative effect upon the main goal of gene survival. We can set up these sub goals very easily, but then having once set it up, we then can often be highly resistant to dropping it again. So easy come, hard go. Colonel Nicholson is a very good example of that. Once he had set up this sub-goal of building the bridge and showing the Japanese how good the British soldier is at building bridges, then he couldn't let go of it. It was an obsession with him. And that's a fairly common thing with us. We set up these sub-goals and then loyalty to the party, for example, loyalty to a leader can take over and can subvert in a very big way the global goal. I'd probably better stop uh, talking about the meaning of life now because we want to go on with that. Well, I,
0: think I, would, I would just ask you about all of that before we move on to, to Outgrowing God is many of those sub-goals and those subversions are things that one would argue, going back to your idea of music and, and art, make life richer and make the meaning of life a, a richer, more feeling, full of feeling meaning.
2: Of course, and I'm delighted you brought that back because I really want to to stress once again that talking as a scientist does sound very cold and unfeeling and unrich. And I'm like anybody else; I'm a human being. I mean, I I have my own sub goals, and they they're far more important to me than the main goal of gene of gene survival. You know, I'm I'm passionate about human relationships. I'm passionate about love. I'm passionate about the my current project whatever it is writing a book or whatever it might be and these are the things that govern my life and there'll be similar things that govern your life they won't be exactly the same but there'll be parallel things that you'll feel them just as strongly as as I feel mine and so i have nothing against these subguilds i think they're wonderful and the fact that i use a word like subversion is in no way intended to convey any kind of negative feeling i'm all for it i've often said that whereas i'm a passionate Darwinian with respect to why we exist and how we came to be the way we are. I'm a passionate anti-Darwinian when it comes to things like personal feelings and political philosophy.
0: And I want to come back to, to Darwin certainly when we move on to, to talk about now your most recent book, which as I said is, is written, well you, you tell us, what age is it written for? Is it written for, for children, young young adults?
2: I would say young adults. I mean, maybe a median age of about 15, but I'd like to think that it goes down to about 10, uh, certainly bright 10-year-olds, and goes up to about 102, which was the age my mother was when she died and enjoyed it very much. <laughs>
0: okay. The main mission, it feels like, is is to ensure that children and, and the people who read it dismiss any belief they might have in God. And I think that if that's a fascination of the
2: book. Let me stop you there. I I rather wish they'd prefer to say, think for themselves. I mean, I'm anxious but because I've so often been critical of religious interests, um, brainwashing children. I'm very anxious not to do that. And so constantly throughout the book, I've said, think for yourself. And what do you think about this? What's your idea about this? So I'd, I'd, I'd rather not say quite that it, the, the, the aim is to turn them into atheists. I'd I, I rather want them to, to think for themselves. I think if they do think for themselves, they will probably become atheists, but that's another matter.
0: So they encourage your right to think for themselves. It's, it's Every chapter ends with a question, and, and every and every chapter is a question. But it's quite clear from reading it, and obviously from knowing previous thoughts of yours, that you, you go to great lengths in, in here to prove or to show that God does not exist. And I'm wondering why that is so so important
2: to you. Well, mainly because I care about truth. And it's as a scientist that I care about truth. There are other reasons, of course, which is that religion can have very bad effects, especially if, if children are so fully indoctrinated that they go to the lengths of wanting to be martyrs for the faith or something like that. But mostly I care about truth as a scientist and somewhat unlike many scientists when they consider this question, I actually think that the existence or non-existence of a god or gods is a scientific question. I don't think it's a matter of personal taste. I think that there is, it's a scientific question in the sense that a universe that is created by a conscious intelligence, a god in other words, would be a totally different kind of universe from a universe that was not created by a god so this is not a sort of incidental thing where you can sort of take your pick well if it, it feels right for me i mean i i i you know, I, I like the feel of that i like to feel that probably is a god it's good it's, it's good for me to feel that no it, it it's either true or it's not it's one of those questions that is either true or not now that doesn't mean we can tell whether it's true or not that doesn't mean that methods of science are at least yet able to decide whether there's a god but it is nevertheless a scientific question and so as a scientist I care about whether it's true and I think the evidence certainly there's no good evidence for the existence of a god I think that one can say there's rather good evidence against.
0: So you you say that sort of it can indoctrinate children and have bad effects but a vast amount of religion is something that actually brings sort of security and and comfort to many people. And especially now we're all going through this uh, extraordinary time, you see that um, religion coming together as religious communities can can give people, as I say, a great deal of comfort. And I wonder why you would want to sort of take that uh, away from them, essentially.
2: Well, I don't want to take it away in a sort of wanton way. I don't have a sadistic pleasure in taking away comfort, but... I, I just think the truth is more important. I suppose doctors face this when they they have a patient who has terminal cancer and they have to decide whether to tell the patient that they've got six months to live, or whatever it might be, or whether to simply lie to the patient. And you could say, well, don't be such a horrible doctor. Don't tell this the the, the patient. But many patients actually want to know, and I think that as a very good case for saying that a good doctor will find ways to tell the patient that she or he has got cancer. So it's not an obvious thing to say that because somebody gets comfort from something, therefore you shouldn't disabuse them. I think it's a moot point anyway, whether people really do get comfort for it. Maybe some people do, but when you think that many children are told in childhood, when they're at a very impressionable age, that if they're bad, they're going to go to hell, they're going to roast forever in hell. Uh, In extreme forms, this doctrine says that when their skin has been peeled off by the fire, they'll grow another skin so it could be peeled off again. I mean, this is terrifying stuff to those people who believe it, and many children do believe it. And so if you go to your, if you are approaching your end and you believe that hell is a reality, not, I'm sure that that's right to call that comfort. I mean, I've actually known people who are old and who are pro- approaching their, their, their end who are literally terrified of going to hell. And so it's not an obvious thing that religion does give comfort, even if you don't think you're going to hell, if you think you're going to heaven. The idea of spending not just a, a few, a couple more centuries, but literally billions and billions of centuries. Doing nothing very much in heaven is a pretty unpleasant prospect to to some of us. So it is not obvious that, that people get comfort from religion. I suspect people are more likely to get comfort from other things like the warmth of human love. I wonder too whether many religious people actually do believe that they're going to survive their own death. I think if they did, when somebody is told by a doctor that they have terminal cancer, they should say something, oh good, I'm looking forward to this, Um, this it'll be rather fun. I'll be able to see my grandparents and so on. They don't say that. And when you're talking to a person who's near death, you don't say, "Uh, well, do give my love to Uncle Robert when you see him, Uh, it's as though people don't really believe it, as though they just pretend to believe it.
0: But I think going back to the meaning of life, don't you concur that for many people, The idea of there being more to life than just this one to go on to another place does help people in this life. and Perhaps in many ways, it it makes life in this life feel fuller and more and more worth living if they for people in this life.
2: I doubt that. Uh, I fear it has the opposite effect, that if you if you think that you're going to another life, you don't take this life seriously enough. I mean, I think one of the most wonderful things about not believing in an afterlife is that it makes you really, really decide to make the most of this life, not just for yourself, but for other people as well. I think there's something rather corrosive about believing that this life is only a sort of rehearsal for the eternity that's to come in in another life. Uh, So I think I'd rather dissent from your suggestion there.
0: What you go on to talk about in the book when you're talking about this is the idea of a morality being imposed upon people by religion and that we shouldn't assume that we wouldn't be moral beings if we didn't have religious codes. So, for example, the idea that we need to be good in this life to make sure that we get to the, to the next. Where do you think then that the idea of good or bad, you know, what is right and wrong, kind, unkind, where does that come from if it's not from being passed on to us through religious code?
2: Well, it can be passed on not through religious codes. It can be passed on through moral, philosophic codes. I mean, we have secular philosophers, moral philosophers who reason about what is right and what is wrong. Um, The golden rule, things like that. I mean, do unto others as you would wish them to do unto you. That kind of thing. Um, Would you wish to live in a society where people steal and rape and murder? No, you wouldn't. I mean, so you know, you why not try to live this kind of life that you hope other people would surround you by. So moral philosophy, which is which is secular, or at least mostly secular, can be secular, is where we proximally get it from. Ultimately, I suppose we get it from our evolutionary past, that there, there are good biological reasons for being good, certainly to kin, and that kind of generalizes to society at large. But I want to come back to the idea that religion is a good way to get our morality. I think it's a terrible way to get our morality, really. You mentioned the idea of, you didn't put it like this, but sucking up to God. Um, (laughs) It's not a very noble motive for being good or being afraid of God, being afraid of going to hell, wanting to go to heaven. These are uh, sort of apple polishing motives for being good, which I don't think I really want to respect somebody who's only good because they're sucking up to God. And even more so, somebody who, I was once talking to a, uh a man in Texas, I think, on, on the I was on the radio and he was one of these phone-in things. He was phoning in. And he phoned in and said, if I didn't believe in God, I'd go out and murder my neighbor. Well, the re- reaction to that is, well, I don't really wish to know you. I mean, if if that's your only reason for not for not murdering your, your neighbor, you're not you're not the kind of person I would wish to to be anywhere near. And I think most of us would agree with that. We're of not. But that, but that,
0: that's, so that's quite an ex- extreme example. But what you talk about in the book is the great, what you call the great surveillance camera in the sky, and
2: yeah.
0: our conscience is just knowing that someone is watching. And, and you say you'd like to believe that humans are better than that, and you'd be honest whether yeah. be watching or not. So I agree with you. But the experiment you cite in the book shows that, unfortunately, yeah. that isn't the way.
2: I know it's very upsetting, isn't it? The experiment you're talking about is by Melissa Bateson. And she, um, in, in her scientific department, um, she provided coffee for people to help themselves. <clears throat> but they were supposed to put money in an honesty box. And so she had a measure, the amount of money that went into the honesty box. She had a measure of people's honesty. And she every week, she put up a price list. And at the top of the price list, she drew either a pair of eyes, she's a good, she's a good artist, either a pair of eyes or flowers. The flowers were a control. And when she drew a pair of eyes, during the week after she drew the pair of eyes, she noticed that the amount of money put in the honesty box was more, significantly more, which suggests that the the members of her department were influenced in a subconscious way by the thought that they were being watched. Well, that's, I mean, obviously they didn't really think they were being watched because they knew it was only a drawing of eyes, but it suggested that there's something innate in us which suggests that having a a conscience is is a matter of whether we're being watched. Well, if that's true, then, as you say, the the great surveillance camera in the sky, God watching everything you do and even reading your thoughts, unfortunately, it, it, it might be a realistic motive, but it's still not a very noble one. It's a rather ignoble one. The other way in which people sometimes say that religion contributes to morality is through the Bible. And I think if anybody who's actually read the Bible would disagree with that. If you actually read the Bible and you imagine getting your morality from the Bible, with one or two noble exceptions like the Sermon on the Mount, almost every other verse in the Bible that mentions morality, mentions any kind of moral lesson at all, is appalling, especially the Old Testament, but also the New Testament. So do not get your morals by reading the Bible, whatever else you do, that or indeed the Quran, um, That would be a terrible way to get your, your morality. Get your morality by, I want say, intelligent design. Uh, get your morality from moral philosophy, from thinking it through, from thinking what is the kind of society in which I would wish to live? What is the kind of society in which I would like to be treated by other people? Therefore, I should treat them in that way.
0: The very basic tenets of, 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 of a good society, love thy neighbour. I know there are, there are lots of other commandments that you wouldn't advocate, but they have filtered down from religion, ultimately.
2: Well, love thy neighbour is something that Jesus said, and various other teachers have said it as well, including moral philosophers. It's a fairly obvious maxim. Who, who would dissent from the idea that, that we'll all lead a happier life if we love our neighbour, at least be charitable to our neighbour, at least, I mean, give money to charity, be a nice person. Um, why would we not wish to, to live in a society of that of that sort? You don't need Jesus to tell you that.
0: Can, can I come back to a, another p- point that comes through in your book? You you talk about you you reference a lot the U.S. Um, and I've heard you do lots of other, you know in in lots of other interviews similarly where there are uh, there is a much more sort of fervent fanatical side to, to to religion, and I'm wondering you don't necessarily distinguish so much between the fact that there are a lot of people very sort of quietly, peacefully practicing religion. Is that not fine?
2: Yes, it is. And, and I think that you've rightly discerned a tendency to concentrate on America. And that's because so much of the American public, as we know from polls, take religion very seriously in a fundamentalist way. So, I mean, some huge number of, of I think it's near, nearly 50% of the American public believe literally in the book of Genesis, for example. And so it was finding it fairly natural for me to think of my audience as a largely American audience because they're the people I wanted to reach. I mean, they're the people who really need need to be converted, so to speak. But yes, it's important to stress that there are perfectly decent religious people who are nothing like that in America, in Britain, all over the world. Why
0: do you think America does have that? Why why does America, (laughs) is it singled out in that way?
2: yes i mean it's it stands out like a sore thumb if you actually um, look look at a graph of educational level economic level and so on against religiosity the, the the tendency is for the higher the educational level of a country and the greater the economic prosperity of a country and the welfare pro- provision of a country the lower the religiosity america stands out as a sore thumb it it, it is one it is the most economically prosperous country in the world and has a very high educational standard and yet Um, It is one of the most religious countries, certainly in the Western world. It's a very odd phenomenon. I don't really understand it. There have been various suggestions made. One interesting suggestion is that because the constitution of the United States proscribes religion, there there is, the constitution says there shall be complete separation between church and state. And that means that religion has been free to become free enterprise. And so, Big business, I mean, televangelists vie with each other for custom. They they b- buy television advertising t- time They and they become immensely rich. So free enterprise conspiring with religion uh, has, has made religion popular in America. That's one theory. If you look at countries like the Scandinavian countries and Britain, where there is an established church, religion has become boring. And it's become just church is a place you go to be married and buried, and it's not a place you go every Sunday out of conviction. Um, Whereas in in America, people do. And when you move into a new town, people invite you to party, and and the first question is, one's often told, which church do you go to? And it's assumed that you go to a church. So um, it it may be that that's part of the reason. Um, So
0: so it is essentially when you're writing uh, Outgrowing God, and 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 giving these ideas, they really are more specifically for people who fundamentally believe the Bible or whatever religious scripture it is to be true. But what about those for whom it's it's religious myth uh, you know and legend, which is very different from that and and is? And yes,
2: I agree with that, but I don't quite understand then why they I mean it, myth and legend is fine. I mean, I love myths and legends, and there are myths, myths and legends all over the world but why do they then say well i'm a christian but in a mythological sense why don't they just say well i'm interested in myths and legends i'm interested in the myths of the babylonians and the assyrians and the chinese and the and the sumerians and and the and the mayans and the incas but they will say oh i'm a christian I'm, but but i believe it's all myth and legend it's all it's all metaphor why why add i'm a christian the reason is they're brought up christian so that it's just a kind of loyalty to The heritage of their parents and grandparents. And I think that that's, as it were, belies the suggestion that they're interested in it as myth and legend.
0: I think there's also a sense that people, while evidence and truth and scientific fact is very important, people want to leave some sort of segment of life to to mystery and, and to and to the unknown. I mean, you you once were a believer, was it and now you were obviously a true follower of, of Darwin and you've talked about Darwinism, but was that your light bulb moment where you changed your mind?
2: Yes, it was. But I what was how do you preamble that? Do you before you asked me that question? Because I mean I was interested in that. I,
0: well, I was gonna move on to the mystery. I was saying people need oh, yes,
2: mystery, people yes. need
0: an element of of mystery and um, I mean, I was going to ask you about, to talk about Darwinian theory in the sense okay. that... Okay,
2: my- mystery is great, but my- mystery is to be solved. I mean, that's what science is about, is solving mysteries. I mean, we don't, we don't like mystery for its own sake. Well, maybe the people you're talking about do, in which case I've got no time for that. Um, I think mysteries are a challenge to be solved, to be answered. That's what science is about. We love mystery. But we, but we love it because we're going to solve it.
0: But we haven't. But so the point, as so the point I was going to come to, is that we haven't, we haven't solved it all. So I mean, Darwin came along with his theory of, of natural selection, but but we still haven't solved the creation of the universe. So why do you take to people filling that unsolved, unknown with a with a god?
2: Fill it with a resolution to answer the question. As you say, Darwin solved the problem of life, but we're still left with the problem of the origin of the universe. That means it's the next problem to go on to. We want to solve the problem of the origin of the universe. Don't just lie down and say, oh, well, we don't know how it began, therefore God done it. I mean, that would be a pathetically inadequate way to respond to a mystery.
0: But that's calling a lot of great, great minds pathetically inadequate, isn't it? Because so many people have believed that, that that space, you know, that there is a, a God in that space. I mean, I, I know that Einstein has, you know, almost bends to, to whatever you want him to. So you would say he, he was an atheist, but, but he attributed the word God to the kind of randomness and chaos of the unknown.
2: Well, he did. I mean, Einstein liked to use the word God, but for him, God was just a, a euphemism of that which we don't understand. It didn't mean he, he was a theist. He most certainly wasn't. He was very vociferous on, the, on that point. And as you say, lots of very, very bright people, including Newton and, and various other people, um, Faraday, have, have believed in God. But that's really not really relevant, especially when I mean, Newton lived 200 years before Darwin. And, and so, I mean, we're very, it would be very hard to be a convinced atheist before Darwin came along
0: even since Darwin came along, there have been many, many people who still feel that that unknown creation can be filled with a God. Uh,
2: if you actually ask them what they believe, um, you, they will say something like, um, well, there's plenty that we don't understand. And uh, there's there great mystery. And um, it, like Einstein would say, well, well," I'm, Einstein said, I'm a deeply religious man, meaning that he didn't, he, he was religious in the sense that he didn't know, know the answer to things but he didn't believe in a conscious creator. And if you actually ask those scientists who claim to be religious, about 10% will actually genuinely believe in Jesus or God, Allah or Jehovah. But the great majority of them believe only in the same way as Einstein. They They are moved by the mystery of existence, by the mystery of the origin of the universe and so on. But it doesn't mean that they think it was done by a conscious creator.
0: You you say yourself, strictly speaking, it is impossible to prove something does not exist. So you have to entertain, or or, do you not, that that it is a possibility.
2: Well, you can't disprove the tooth fairy and mother goose and and fairies and wizards and witches and things like that. I mean, there's an infinite number of things you can't disprove. But that is very different from saying that, that you have to take them. Seriously, it's, it's one thing to say I'm agnostic about God and fairies, the tooth fairy uh, and, and, and magic spells and things. But it's another thing to say that it's at all likely. It is, you're still entitled to say that on the balance of probability, um, I don't think the tooth fairy exists and I don't think God exists.
0: It's interesting. I think that there's a lot has come out of this year when you're looking at science uh, and, and science's truth because people look around now at scientists endless, endlessly, you know, disputes between science. I'm talking about the pandemic. Science is as open to interpretation as almost anything else, it feels right now.
2: It is, of course. That's right. And, and it's, it's, it's very important to understand that, that that scientists can disagree about things because the evidence is not all in the evidence is not is not totally there um, and uh, even interpretation of evidence can 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 vary but don't let's get uh, negative about science science is our only hope for solving things like the, like the pandemic we need a, we need vaccines and it's science is going to, going to provide them nothing else will
0: what do you believe then? You know, you write outgrowing God. Do you strive or, or hope to see a society that has entirely outgrown God collectively? Is that what you want to see?
2: Yes, definitely most definitely I do. do you
0: believe that, that I mean you believe that, that is a is a possibility.
2: Oh, that's another matter. Uh, um I yes, I do, but I certainly hope it is.
0: And if you were, were we can talk about this at a how-to academy, how to academy event. You can talk about it, you can debate it um, as as an intellectual. But if you were given, you know, suddenly tomorrow someone came knocking on your door and and, and gave you a position of authority, what would would be the actual changes then you would make in society? Would they immediately be to education? And where where would you start with that?
2: Yes, I would, I think. I mean, I think think, um, free, open education without um, indoctrination. I think that if children have been seized at a young age and have been told as a a matter of undeniable fact that God exists and and that all sorts of much more detailed things than that. I mean, if if they're of Islamic parents have been sent to a madrasa and they've been told that every word of the Quran is literally true, Christian parents on the whole don't indoctrinate to quite that extent, but it's still to a lesser extent. If children have been got that young, then it's very hard to to change their minds. I I would certainly wish if I had power to stop childhood indoctrination, and then I would wish that children should be taught to think, taught to think for themselves, taught to evaluate evidence, taught whenever anybody tells you anything, as a matter of fact, to ask them what the evidence is. Is there evidence for it? If they're very young, of course, it's hard to explain the evidence sometimes, but it should always be the first question, what's the evidence for that? The, the, the right answer to the question is not, well, our people have always believed that, or our holy book says that. The right answer is, there's evidence for it. Where yeah. is the evidence?
0: It's interesting going back to what you were talking about the tooth fairy, and I've heard you talk about pink unicorns. And when you speak like that, is there no room for, for childhood sort of imagination and, and dreaming and, and thinking of things that aren't, you know, living in worlds that aren't true?
2: Yes, I think it is important, and, and I think that um, fairy stories are valuable. I, th- I think that de- letting the child's imagination soar uh, th- through through stories is is important. I, I'm I'm not against that, but I, I want, want to stress that we've been talking about religion a lot. But the, the second, the whole of the second half about growing God is about evolution, not about religion at all. It's 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 about science. So I wouldn't want want to give the impression that this is an atheist tract. It's in fact at least fifty percent uh is is it's a science book.
0: Well I mean I was before we got to mystery, that's where I was essentially going talking about obviously you, you your main reason for, for writing the book or for talking about that is to do with Darwinian theory. And so I was you know thinking that's how you explain the great mysteries to some people of, of the beauty of nature and you, you have pictures in the book of termite castles and, and you know starlings in the sky and all of that can be explained.
2: Yes it can. Um, I mean may, maybe not in every detail yet, but Darwin has provided us with the tools we need to explain everything about life and all that remains now is to, is to flesh out the details.
0: Can I move to some, there's a, there's a great number of, of questions. Yes, of Somebody says how close do you think we are to determining, And we've touched this, the, the chemical or origin of life?
2: Well that's a very difficult and interesting question. Um, There are various theories of it. No theory is predominant at the moment. One of the more fashionable ones is the RNA world theory, which is the idea that the first genetic molecule, the the problem is how did the first genetic molecule arise? It probably wasn't DNA. DNA is the one that pervades life at the moment, but it probably wasn't DNA because DNA is too too much of what's been called a high-tech replicator. The RNA world theory suggests that RNA was the forerunner. It's still very important, but, but not as genetic molecule. So, no, the, the problem of the origin of life is not solved. It can never probably be solved directly because it happened a long time ago. Uh, and we can't probably recreate the conditions under which it happened. What we, the most we can probably hope for is that somebody comes up with a model which is so persuasive that we say, oh, of course, it's got to be that. That is so obviously an elegant theory that it almost certainly has to, be, has to be right. That's probably the most we can hope for.
0: Somebody asks, are you a materialist? What science in the 20th and 21st century has been discovered to suggest this? Are your views at odds with the pioneers of quantum mechanics?
2: No, I mean, qu- quantum mechanics is not an immaterial theory. It's very sophisticated, very difficult for non-physicists to understand. Actually, it's pretty difficult for physicists to understand, but it would be wrong to say that, that it, was, it was not materialist. It, it is materialist.
0: Why do humans have... Let's go back to these um, subversive sub-goals. Why do humans have those?
2: Well, it's an interesting question. I think it's probably that our brains got so big that it, the possibility of subversion became a real one. I mean, any animal could subvert in in the same way. Uh, um, Any any animal where hedonistic pleasure becomes more important than the main goal of gene survival could be said to be subject to subversion. Um, If, say, an animal enjoys sex so much that um, it, as it were, becomes obsessive about sex and they don't, don't have access to contraception, so it's not quite the same thing. But perhaps if the animal... Become so obsessed with sex that it neglects parental care, say, and lets babies, lets children starve um, because of being too too busy um, having sex. That that would be a kind of subversion. But with with humans, our brains have become so big, and we have become so dominated by cultural evolution as opposed to genetic evolution. Uh, we have become. We live in a world of books. We live in a world of the internet. We live in a world of films. Um, We live in a world where so much of what we see and hear around us is the product of human history, human human culture. It's really very easy to become obsessed with sub goals, which are only very distantly related to the main goal of uh, gene propagation. So I think it's probably because our our brains became so big. Our brains became big in the service of the genetic survival. That's why they became big, natural selection, for various reasons which are interesting to go into. Natural selection favored big-brained individuals. But then as a byproduct of that, we became capable of doing all sorts of other things which are not directly related to gene survival. They're only indirectly related and which can be regarded as subversive sub
0: So then moving away from, from the sub-goals and to the idea of if there is any evidence for an existence of, of God, somebody um, asks, do you believe there can ever be any subjective evidence for that? What evidence would it take you to acknowledge such, such such an existence if indeed there was any?
2: Well, subjective evidence is difficult, isn't it? I suppose by subjective evidence one would mean something like... a an inner conviction, a feeling that God is actually talking to you. That I think would be very unpersuasive because people have hallucinations all the time, and we have, every night we dream, um, and dreams are a good demonstration of the power of the brain to make up stories, make up voices talking in our head, and, and so on. So I don't think subjective evidence would ever be, should ever be convincing. Objective evidence—it might be another matter. I mean, I, I, I've sometimes thought mm-hmm. that that if if Jesus were to suddenly appear, trailing clouds of glory from the clouds, that that would be pretty convincing. But <laughs> so was, maybe that'll happen. But
0: you've, I, I'm, you've I'm thought
2: that what? You've
0: even, you've even you have thought that that has popped into your mind.
2: Well, yes. Um, I, I'm not sure how convincing it would really be, but because I, I think I think again, I think it might be it might be a hallucination. But um, anyway, I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. um, uh,
0: uh, somebody asks if the ultimate end goal is gene survival. It's an important point. How does one justify continuing one's life once your offspring has survived infancy and is no longer dependent on you as a parent? Um, especially in light of potential overpopulation problems. P.S. I'm a school teacher watching with students, and that question came from Tom. Th- thank you, Tom.
2: Okay, hello, Tom. Well. Really, the, the answer I want to give is is the one I've given several times: that 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 we as humans don't have to be slaves to our selfish genes. I mean, I've, the the last words of my first book, "The Selfish Gene," are: "We we have the power to rebel against the tyranny of the selfish genes." So, if you either finished your reproduction, or if you don't intend to reproduce and never have intended to reproduce, that doesn't matter because you can, you've got these perfectly laudable, praiseworthy, wonderful subgirls which can go on until you drop. Uh, So that that would be my my personal answer. If you want a a Darwinian answer, um, there's plenty of good reasons for Darwinians to go on um, surviving after they've reproduced because you can care for your grandchildren, -grandchildren. great-grandchildren.
0: Jonathan asks, 200 years ago, science told us that Newtonian physics were correct. Science has since revised its views, as similar to what we were discussing, due to relativity and quantum mechanics. How do we know that God or some notion of a role of a godlike figure won't be proven to exist in 100 years in a way we cannot envisage now?
2: It would not totally surprise me if uh, we discovered that um, there was some superior intelligence in the universe uh, that somewhere, maybe some some alien life form on another planet somewhere is so far advanced over us that if we ever met it, we would feel like dropping to our knees and worshiping it because it'd be so much more advanced than than us. If they ever got here, we probably would do that anyway because they'd have to be very much superior to us in order to get here. That doesn't mean that they're gods. That would mean they're like gods, but they would have to have come about by the same kind of incremental evolutionary process as we came about. What is an enormous difference between a creature which is godlike in the sense of being very advanced, intelligent, complicated, and so on. And a real god, in the sense, it was there right from the start of the universe without having to, have, having to evolve. So, y- y- yes, I mean, I, th- I think that, that there could be a scientific evidence one day for something, something godlike, but I don't think an actual god, in the sense of a creator,
0: You've touched on this, but it's it's interesting that they mention so many different theories. So given the new theories on the origin of life, such as alkali events and evidence on the, abili- um, the ability for organic molecules to replicate on the surfaces of crystals, do you think your original theory of primordial soup still holds true and is the best working hypothesis for the origin of life on Earth?
2: I don't uh, hold a torch for any particular theory of the origin of life. Um, I'm very interested in... Ken Smith's ideas of 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 crystals I'm very interested in the RNA world theory I, mean, I don't care I mean I I I'm, I'm fascinated by all these these ideas and uh, what what I care about is that we we need to have some theory to account for the origin of the first self replicating entity now if that's an inorganic crystal great fine if that's um RNA also great if it's some, something in um, hot springs, if it's something in deep sea vents, that's great too i, I, as a, I don't care, i do, I do care I'm very interested but i but it, it's a matter of indifference to me as long as there is some theory of it, which of course there is
0: Somebody touches on I was asking you at the beginning about the comfort of religion, and this is a similar a similar question is in some regions of the world, people fight for survival on a daily basis. could it not be? do you not agree that religion makes it easier for them to cope with the daily struggles and they don't have the luxury uh, of scientific discussion, discussion on the meaning of life?
2: Yes, I'm sure that's probably right. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that that um, it, it, it sort of is a luxury and uh, it doesn't mean it isn't true. Um, and I do care passionately about what's true. But I think it could be argued also that if you are living in poverty or slavery, indeed, being persuaded that say this life is just temporary and you're gonna have it all right when you get to heaven sort of thing might stop you from rebelling against the terrible privations in which you live. I think it's it's arguable that slaves in America um, were, as it were, kidded into thinking that they didn't need to worry about having a horrible life uh, in th- this life because it's all gonna get better. In in the in the in the next life, and in a way, I'd I'd rather they rebelled. I'd rather they 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 turned on their captors and freed them themselves. And maybe if if religion tended to soften their resolve to do that, I think it might have been a bad thing.
0: So we know what you don't think happens when you die. A number of people have asked, what do you therefore think happens, and also, uh, do you fear it?
2: Well. What, what happens? Um, nothing happens. You, you become, you become, the lights, the lights go out. I fear dying. I fear, um, not being allowed to go to the vet and, and, uh, be put down because, uh, m- in most people's deaths are not particularly pleasant, I suspect. And so I think, I think that dying is a, is, is not a pleasant prospect. Death itself, um, as I said earlier on, I think that the prospect of living forever is a terrifying uh, one. if 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 I think about what actually might be frightening about death, it would be the idea of eternity. and um that there is something disquieting about about the the, the world going on and on and on for billions of years without you. But the world going on and on for billions of years with you might be even worse. And so I think that, The the prospect of dying under a general anaesthetic appeals to me and the prospect of spending eternity under a general anaesthetic appeals to me as well. And that's what's going to happen.
0: Uh, I'm glad someone's asked this because, as you say, a lot of um, the end of the book or the very uh, last part of the book is how excited, essentially, we should be about science and, you know, the things that you just wouldn't believe were true, uh, that they are. I can't remember what you say, what you repeatedly say. You can't be serious, John McEnroe, about the things that, that science can
2: yeah, do. Can't be serious, um, yeah.
0: Simon asks, um, what, in your view, is the current most exciting research in evolutionary biology?
2: Well, let me think. Oh, I suppose the origin of life, which has come up several times, uh, is one of them. I mean, I would dearly, dearly like to see that solved before I go. I would like to see um, something. I'd I'd like to understand human consciousness, subjective consciousness, which I think is a huge mystery. It's got to be soluble. I mean, it it is obviously a product of brains. It's something to do with brain physiology, Uh, and so I would like to see that solved. And so brain research is is immensely exciting. The whole of molecular biology, uh, which has become such a vibrant part of science now, ever since the double helix was solved in 1953, when we've understood that genetics is all about digital coding. It's like a branch of computer science. It is a branch of computer science. It's just that it's quaternary rather than binary, but otherwise it's just like computers. And so this is something which would have amazed Darwin. He wouldn't have had the concept of what what a digital code is, but I think he would have got it in the end. It's an amazing thing that at, at root, all of life is digital. It's digital coding, it's information. And, and that, that's what's propelling molecular genetics along, and it is an immensely exciting field. So I think that's probably my answer to the question.
0: I, I just interesting question. Someone at the beginning said, "Does it matter? Does it really matter at all what the meaning of life is? Let's just get on with doing it the best we can, whatever the meaning." Do we analyze these things too much? And that's obviously a stupid question, probably to ask someone who analyzes it, but.
2: It's immensely important to me i mean I, I I think you've got to be somewhat brain dead if you just want to get on with living your life and don't want to un- don't ever want to understand why you exist in the first place i mean i i, I want both i mean I, I want to get on with with my life and I want to go on with having a good life and enjoying myself and hoping to other people enjoy the, with helping other people to have a good life too. but the thought of just living your life without having the basic curiosity to wonder where you came from and why you exist, and what's it all for? I, I can't imagine that.
0: Somebody else, do you think alien life will have evolved in the same way as that on Earth and will be based on DNA?
2: Very interesting question. I, I'm pretty confident that it will have evolved by something like Darwinian means. But DNA, probably not. I mean, I think that DNA is, is only one method in which this can happen. It it would have to be something equivalent to DNA. I think it would have to be some sort of self-replicating molecule. I suspect that the genetic code will have to be digital. It might not necessarily be one-dimensional as DNA is. It could be a two-dimensional matrix, for example. Um, But the answer to the question is yes to Darwinian evolution, no to DNA, or if yes to DNA, then certainly no to the same DNA code would would be much too much of a coincidence for it to be the same code. Possibly not too much of a coincidence for it to be a DNA, but unlikely, I think, but probably digital.
0: Do you believe, after looking at the history of human existence, that we seem to want to be controlled? It's very interesting. Or feel morally we need to be controlled by something such as religion?
2: I hope not. Um, I I don't, I've never thought of it like that before. I mean, a kind of Submissive desire to be to be dominated. Um, maybe some people have that. I I don't think I do. I don't think I want to be dominator. I don't want to dominate either, for that matter. But but um, no, I don't. I don't think so, really.
0: So so why then, somebody else asks, have humans evolved to have consciousness? Um, as this quality of humans doesn't seem to have any root in sub goals or even in the main goal of reproduction, as you've touched upon. But why why have we?
2: Well. Um, it's not obvious to me that it's not, I mean, I think it probably is useful. It's. I, I, it has been suggested that consciousness is an epiphenomenon, that, it, that it's something that just happens and nothing to do with n- the need to survive. But I think that there must be something about it which is good for survival, something about a conscious brain which enables it to do things better than if it was unconscious. That isn't obviously true. I mean, it, it would be perfectly... In in principle, possible for us to be, for living creatures to be robots without any consciousness at all, uh, like chess playing computers. I mean, chess playing computers are very, very good at chess, but I think nobody thinks they're conscious. And so it would be possible to build a robot which did everything that humans do uh, and yet was unconscious. Um, And so that's a telling argument against the idea that consciousness is useful, but I still feel there must be something more that makes it useful. And I, obviously, I don't understand what that is.
0: This is another important, we haven't brought up this, but are the propagation of memes similar to the propagation of genes? Are they the equivalent of the biological meaning of life?
2: Well, I mean, the, the, the reason for su- suggesting the concept of memes in the first place was to explore the possibility that they are equivalent, uh, because um, if they're not, then, then the concept is of no value. Um, but but I, I suggested it because I was interested in the idea that genes might not be the only self-replicating entity which was subject to Darwinian selection. Um, it's quite clear that memes exist in the sense that there that there is self-replication um in uh in human culture. But whether you can actually make a useful Darwinian theory out of them as replicators. Is a matter for further research. I think there's, it's promising, but it but it's not certain.
0: Somebody asks, to what extent are you pessimistic? They don't suggest that you could be optimistic, but there we go. About the potential impacts on human existence of AI um, and and the encroachment of silicon-based intelligence in the future.
2: I am interested in this. Um, it, 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 there's a fascinating book by Max Tegmark, a physicist, about um, Super AI and and how he thinks it will be. It'll be a complete takeover of everything that we do. And he's optimistic in the sense that he thinks, although there will be a takeover, we, it means we can, we, we humans, we soft, pudgy things, can can get on with enjoying life and leave all the work and all the thinking to to artificial intelligence. A lot of people are pessimistic about that. They they think that would destroy a human enterprise and and would make our lives meaningless. I, I I'm don't really have a view about that. I mean, I, I, I'm both excited by it and, and, and fear it at the same time. So, but I, I'd quite like to come back in a couple of hundred years time and, and, and see what, what progress has been made.
0: We'll sneak in um, Michael's question, which is about the peer pressure he, he feels um, that drives the tribalism, which perpetuates religious dogma and how humanity in your view overcomes that.
2: I think tribalism is a great menace, and and uh, it's one of the um, one of the subgoals, I suppose. I could I could say, which is which has um, subverted the main goal. There probably is a biological advantage in uh, tribal loyalty, um, and it's clearly gone too far, and so you have tribal loyalty leading to highly des- destructive ends, and. Religious tribalism is is only one form. There are other forms as well, political tribalism, and so on. I mean, the, the great wars of history have been have been fomented by uh, tribal loyalties. My country, right or wrong, um, etc.
0: A lot of those wars are fought not on religious basis, though, as as you point out in the book. There's there's nationalism and a great deal of other things that fuel.
2: Yes, and the, well, the First World War is 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 is, is an, an example of a, of, a, of a tribal war where the, tri- the tribes are huge, I mean, the great nation, the tribal instinct has got generalised to, to entire nations with, and with, with modern weapons, with terrible, disastrous, catastrophic results.
0: I'm sorry to end on a, on a not so positive note but, um, but it is now it's time to, to sadly sort of draw it to a close but I'd like to thank all of you for, for coming very, very much indeed and Richard, thank you again thank you very much indeed for joining us thank you,
1: thank you very much This week's podcast starred Richard Dawkins and was presented by Hannah McInnes The producers were Dana Outcolt and myself and it was edited by John Doughty. If you enjoyed the show, please do rate, review and subscribe. And tweet us your suggestions for people you'd love to hear in future episodes. You can find more of Richard and other scientific luminaries on our YouTube channel. And of course, in our program of live stream talks and conversations hosted on our website. And Vas Vas Thanks for listening.